Gospel of John chapter 16, our text will be verses 16 to 22. <clears throat> you know, the Gospel of John has much to say about the Holy Spirit of God. We have learned a number of different things concerning his person, concerning his character, concerning what he does. He is the Spirit who anointed Christ at his baptism, the one whom John saw descending upon him as he describes in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. He's the Spirit that was given as a gift by the Father to Christ without measure, John chapter 3. Throughout these particular chapters that we've been going over thus far of chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus describes him as the spirit of truth, the epitome of truth, the very definition of truth, just as Christ himself is, just as the Father is. We learned throughout these past couple of Lord's Days recently that the spirit is the one who testifies about Jesus. He is the one who glorifies Jesus. He is another advocate to the people of God, the one who comes alongside, the one who encourages, the one who helps. He is the one who is to be the, the presence of Christ on the earth. As we remember Jesus saying often as he describes his departure, he says, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. And what he has been referring to is the coming of the Spirit of God who is another advocate like him to take his place on the earth. We read of his work within the realm of humanity, that when the spirit of truth comes, Jesus says he's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment for those that the Father has given to Christ. Jesus taught what a special work that he does within the hearts of the people of God. In John chapter 7, we remember these words that Jesus said during the time of the great feast, during the climax of the great feast, John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. With this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He is the Spirit who satisfies the soul as water satisfies our thirst. And it's out of an abundance. Rivers of living water is how his work is described in us. That nurtures the soul. That the nurturing never runs out. And how does he do this? What is the beginning of this great blessing that Jesus has described for us and the Gospel of John as a whole has described for us about the work of the Spirit of God. And it begins with what Jesus said in John chapter 3 when he refers to the new birth. You must be born again, he says. You must be regenerated, he says. You must be born from above, which is very important to understand. Because that is setting the foundation for all these things that Jesus is speaking of to his disciples about the coming of the Spirit and what he's going to perform in them what he's going to do through them. It is the new birth that makes us alive to Christ to see him as our only hope before God and so we cling to him in faith. This work the Spirit of God brings about within us. He awakens us from our spiritual deadness. He awakens us to grace, to mercy, and to the love of God. 
And this work of regeneration, this work of being born again, is, is the beginning of the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. Because much of what Jesus has been saying in those chapters of 14, 15, and 16 are speaking of the sanctifying work of the Spirit and what He does within us. That after, after we have received the great blessing of the new birth, our minds have changed, our emotions have changed, our wills have changed. Whereas once they were inclined to wickedness, now they are inclined to Christ, and now we have different desires. And this is, this is vital to understand, because when it comes to the sanctifying work of the Spirit, when it comes to growing in Christ, there is sometimes maybe we, we divorce what the Spirit of God has done previously, or we, what characteristics that God has with what He is doing in us. And what I mean by that is, is when you look in the beginning... That man was created upright, man was created without sin, man was created in the image of God according to his likeness. And so you have in the very beginning, when God first created man, that the moral attributes of God, which we would refer to as the communicable attributes of God, are found within man. And then because of the fall, the moral image of God in which we were created was marred. Those communicable attributes of God, those moral attributes of God that, were, that, that found reflection within man were marred. And now man was only sinful. Man was only dead in his sin, inclined to wickedness. But the work of the Spirit of God in first regenerating us and then sanctifying us, what the Spirit of God is doing in us is now perfecting the communicable attributes of God back in us. That's what sanctification is. He is making us more like Christ. The scripture tells us that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. How do we do that? What's the spirit who works within us? The spirit who is at work within us. And so we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it speaks of those, those moral attributes of God that are now being recreated in us. As Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we're being recreated in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So our sanctification is dealing with the moral attributes of God, having us to become more and more like Christ. Of course, not to the same degree, the moral attributes of God, and not perfected in this life. But we are being changed and conformed to the image of Christ as much as sinners can be in this life, is the goal. And so we see what the Holy Spirit is bringing about within these men that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, that the Holy Spirit of God is producing in them a faithfulness to God that they would continue to abide in him, a love for God and a love for each other, knowledge of God and wisdom to carry out that knowledge, to live by it, to give a peace that is not of this world, to shape them and to mold them, to walk before him righteously and, and to... to to produce holiness in their lives, to carry out the Lord's commands and to do good to those, to even those that hate them. This is the spirit bringing about those moral attributes of God, of faithfulness, of love, of goodness, of knowledge, of wisdom, of holiness, of righteousness, of peace. These things are being restored into those that the Father has given to the Son. And Jesus has been talking about this throughout these chapters. And now, within our text today, we see the continuing work of the Spirit of God and what He is going to bring about. And this is continuing from what He has previously said that we went over last Lord's Day. 
about the work of the Spirit within the disciples themselves, of guiding them into all truth, of speaking to them what he hears from Christ, of glorifying Christ, of taking what's Christ and giving it to them. And then what Jesus begins to say in our text today is to emphasize the joy that believers ought to have. Because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And remember, we are being recreated into the image of God. And the Lord rejoices in himself within the triune nature. And so now that we've been born again, now that our lives are patterned after, after the Holy Spirit, now the joy of the Lord is to be present within our lives. As the Lord delights in himself, so too the people of God are to delight in him. Even in the midst of sorrow. In this passage, Jesus promises his disciples joy. Even joy within sorrow. That's important. Joy within pain. Joy within suffering. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is... What keeps us from this joy? Because this joy is yours. It is yours in Christ. What keeps us from having joy in our life? Rejoicing in the Lord. What keeps us from that? Hmm. The question that we must ask is, is our circumstances greater than the greatness of our God? That's where we need to, to look and to examine ourselves. Because it is yours in Christ. And I pray as we look in this passage that we see that. That we understand that and that we would be deliberate in seeking to lay hold of it. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Here in John chapter 16 beginning in verse 16 reading down to verse 22. This is the inspired inerrant authoritative infallible words of the living God. The scripture tells us, A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of the disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father? So they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit whom you have granted to us, the Holy Spirit who illuminates this passage into our hearts, the word of God into our hearts, the word he inspired. And we pray that he would do a mighty work within us, bringing us to a greater understanding of the joy that we have in Christ, that we would live in that joy and rejoice in you and delight in you as we should. Father, thank you for this portion of your word. May it accomplish all you desire. 
And we pray that you bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. This is a very interesting passage of scripture, for sure. Jesus says, a little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And that's really what the whole text is dealing with. Jesus makes a statement. The disciples are trying to understand, well, what does he mean by this? What does he mean? A little while you will not see me. And again, you will see me. And because I go to the Father. What, what is Jesus referring to there? But what helps us to understand perhaps what Jesus is saying is to understand what we've been going over thus far. We've been going over the work of the Spirit of God. We've been going over the coming of the Spirit as Jesus has announced to his disciples. And he even tells them that it is to your advantage that I go. This is, this is for your good that I go. For one, of course, he's going to accomplish redemption on behalf of his people. And the first thing that Jesus does as he ascends into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Lord is to send the Holy Spirit. The third great work of God is the Spirit coming at Pentecost, as Dr. Joe Beakey says. This is what all this is in reference to. So in light of that, in light of the coming of the Spirit, in light of him testifying of Jesus and glorifying Jesus and, and doing this great work within the world and the great work among the disciples, Jesus then says, in a little while you will not see me, and in a little while you will see me. Now there's three possible interpretations of this. And really, if we look at all three of them, all three would really be true. In a, their various aspects. One, what Jesus could be referring to here, in a little while you will not see me, and in a little while you will see me, is in a few short hours of him saying this, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. And he's going to die. And then there are going to be three days in which the disciples are going to be alone. And then they will see him again when he is resurrected from the dead. Could very well be that. The context would allow for that. They would experience true sorrow because of what happens to him. Before they had been with him and, and he had always... In, in our estimation, as in, from a human perspective, he's always handled himself when it comes to the religious leaders. Anytime that he was ever uh, brought up before charges against them or they're trying to discredit him in front of the crowds, he always was able to put them back in their place. Never could they entrap him. Never could they lay hands on him. He always eluded their grasp. But something's going to change this night. He's going to be taken. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be put through a mockery of a trial. And their sorrow is real. They're going to experience the sorrow of losing their friend and their teacher, their Lord. That they've been with for three and a half years. And to see what, what occurs to him. Because it still hasn't come to their minds yet exactly what he is doing. And why he is doing it. Otherwise, when he had died on the cross, they would know three days he's going to rise again because that's what he told us. That still has not entered into their mind. And so they are experiencing or will experience true sorrow. 
losing their Lord and their teacher, their friend. They're going to experience even greater sorrow because of, of the world rejoicing. The religious leaders are going to be joyful. We finally got rid of him. They're going to mock him while he is hanging on the cross. They're going to make fun of him. They're going to say all kinds of things against him. Spurgeon said, they mocked him before whom angels hid their face. And so as a result of, of this, this, this whole scenario, the world rejoicing, glad that they had killed the Lord of glory, then in itself is going to produce a greater sorrow within the disciples. A sorrow and a disappointment that he didn't redeem Israel in their estimation. You remember when Jesus was resurrected and he's walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We were hoping he was the one to redeem Israel, they said, to inaugurate the kingdom. And so there was disappointment on their part that in their eyes, he didn't do that. So the expectation of what they had in view of who Christ was and who Christ claimed to be as much as they understood, there was a great sorrow and a great disappointment. Because he didn't do that. Not to their definition of that. The sorrow was real. And it was great. For the disciples. But the resurrection. Changed their sorrow. Into joy. Into a great joy. It restored their joy. They began to understand the significance of his atoning death. And now the cross, after his resurrection, is no longer to be seen in, in, as, as a sorrowful thing. Because whenever Paul writes about it, or Peter writes about it, or John is in reference to it, it is always to rejoice because of the cross of Christ. Paul says, I preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. The rejoicing that goes on in heaven that John records in the book of Revelation is, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Peter says, you weren't purchased with, with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. And so their joy was, was, was great after his resurrection, so that when they look back upon the event that caused them great sorrow, they rejoiced because they understood the significance of it. They understood what he accomplished. Paul, John, Peter, the writer of Hebrews, all of them, they glory in the cross of Christ instead of being sorrowful because of it. So that's one interpretation. That's one possibility of what Jesus is talking about. You're going to experience sorrow. You're no longer going to see me, then you're going to see me. Your sorrow, it's going to be great. You're going to experience grief, but then you're going to have joy. So that is one, that is one view of what Jesus is referring to about no longer seeing him because he's taken and arrested and he'll die, but then seeing him again in his resurrection and what joy they have then. They don't know what he's referring to, so they're deliberating amongst themselves. They're asking questions, and Jesus doesn't really come out with a, a straight answer. Only to say that their pain and their sorrow will be real, just as a woman who is, is giving birth her pain is, is great. 
after she gives birth, there's a change because now she sees the baby. So the second, the second possibility, and this is not at all a stretch from the text, is that in a little while you will no longer see me because he is going to give his life, he is going to ascend into heaven, and they will see him again because the Spirit of God who will be sent to them. Because Jesus has said that language already. That I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That when the Spirit abides with you, it, he even says that both he and the Father will abide with them through the Spirit. And so that could be a great possibility too. Of what Jesus is referring to. Is the significance of the coming of the Spirit of God in the fullest measure. The Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth in whom the Lord rejoiced throughout his ministry. The Holy Spirit brings about an even greater insight that the disciples of Christ will rejoice in him, even in the midst of sorrow. Because if we remember what the work of the Spirit is going to do, he's going to give historical truth, he's going to give doctrinal truth, he's going to give prophetic truth, as we read last Lord's Day. He's going to guide them into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will bring back to their remembrance what they have been taught thus far. So you have those three categories of truth that make up the New Testament. Historical truth, doctrinal truth, and prophetic truth. And within the doctrinal epistles, we get an even greater insight into what it is that Jesus had accomplished. We don't read of the atoning work of Christ and Him being our propitiation and our satisfaction. We don't read of those things within the Gospels. We read of those things within the more doctrinal epistles of Paul. It's in many of the epistles, especially in the epistle to the Hebrews, that we read of Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And we read of how Christ has reconciled us to God. We read of the imputed righteousness of Christ. We read of the sanctifying work very clearly. We read of how he paid our sin debt. We understand because of the Spirit of God coming to the disciples and, and allowing them to see Christ with even greater faith, with eyes of faith, a greater view of his person, that as the writers expressed within their, their epistles and even within these books that we're reading here. The Gospels of how Christ is our God and Savior. That He is the eternal Word. That He is the great I Am. That He is the visible image of the invisible God. That He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. That He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the First and the Last, the Beginning and the End. He is the bright and morning star. All of these things we read within the New Testament because the Spirit of God has given the writers of Scripture an even greater knowledge and understanding of the person of Christ. And so there's greater rejoicing. It produces a greater joy, a greater love. He is the Lord of glory. And just as the disciples, so we too, we see our Lord as the Holy Spirit of God focuses our hearts upon Him. We see Him. 
in all his majesty and glory because the Holy Spirit is Christ's presence on earth and he applies to us the benefits of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. He expresses those truths through the pages of Scripture. Even in the times of sorrow. I'm going to keep repeating that. Even in the times of sorrow, there is great joy in the Spirit of God. James Montgomery Boyce says this about the sorrow that we experience in this age. He says, someone will perhaps say at this moment, but I do not see the Lord Jesus even in a spiritual way. There are times that he is far from me. I would like to see him, to feel him close, but I am afraid that the Lord seems far away. He seems to be locked in a previous age of history, end quote. And granted, some may indeed feel that way. Some may have experienced things in their lives to feel that way, to come to that conclusion. But as Dr. Boyce points out, the, the only means that we may approach the true and the living God, approach Christ, the only way is found within the study of the Scripture and prayer. Because it's through the pages of Scripture that the Holy Spirit applies these truths to our heart. If we remember this, what Paul says, that, that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him and he can't spiritually discern them, well, the opposite is true for the people of God. We do accept the things of the Spirit of God, and the more that we are in the Scripture that glorifies Christ and that testifies about Christ, then the more our hearts are engaged in worship and are engaged in learning and not just approaching the Scripture in, in an academic way. I mean, sometimes that happens, and sometimes that's easy to allow to happen, that we only approach the Scripture in an academic way rather than approaching the Scripture to say, Lord, show me your glory. Because the things in this world are going to cause us pain. They're going to cause us sorrow. They're going to cause us sadness. They're going to cause us disappointments. They're going to cause us all of those things because that's how this life goes. These are the things that we all experience, and if we haven't experienced it yet, we will. But what is it that brings us out of that? What helps us to overcome that is to know the true and the living God in Christ. Here's who he is because the Spirit has given us a greater understanding of who he is. This is what he has accomplished on behalf of sinners because the Spirit of God has given us a greater understanding through the pages of Scripture. And my heart is overflowing because what God would do this? Christ Jesus would. And he did. And so I, I can then look at my circumstances and look at the pain that I experience and I can one, depending on what circumstance you're going through, you can either say to yourself, the Lord is on my side. I am on his side. And whatever person or circumstance is against me, I know that I have the Lord with me. And to know that you have the Lord who is above all, who is greater than all, with you gives a great comfort in, the, in your heart to, to, to look at him and say, to look toward the heavens and say, God, be glorified. Be praised, be blessed. As John Knox says, and I love the quote, so I keep saying it. One man with the Lord is in the majority. 
one man with the Lord is in the majority. It doesn't matter who is against you. That's why the Apostle Paul says that. If God is for us, who is against us? There's going to be people against us, yeah, but what does it matter? Why? Because our great God and Savior says, you're mine. And this sorrow that you experience here is momentary, light, affliction, in view of the glory that awaits. And so there's a great comfort that comes upon us and a reason to glory in the Lord. And we do glory in the Lord. If our pain is brought on by other means, whatever, whatever circumstances that life brings, is our circumstance greater than the goodness of God? No. It's not greater than Him. And it's easy to get upset over things that go on in the world, things that go on in our lives. We look and we say, you know, this, this is just, this is ridiculous how this can go on and how people can think these things out in the world. Well, we have to come back to this truth. People are going to do and be what they are because they're sinners and they are alienated from God. So it shouldn't come as a surprise. Now, we can either allow ourselves to get even more upset because of what goes on or what has happened or whatever and allow the people that probably don't even know us or even the people that are against us to have power over us because we allow them to have that influence in our life. Or we can say, my Lord is greater than you. My Lord is greater than this circumstance. My Lord is greater than the pain that you've caused me in my life. He gives me joy. Because he died for me. He gave his life for me. I belong to the living God. No circumstance, no sorrow should ever cause us to despair as the world despairs. You know why? Because you have been born of the Spirit. And the Spirit rejoices in Himself. And now that you're patterned after Him, that joy of the Lord is now in you because He lives in you. And the peace of God is in you because He lives in you. So though we experience the sorrows of this life, the Spirit of God who dwells within us still brings joy even in the midst of it and afterward to heal our hearts. That's why the Lord says He's near to the brokenhearted. But we cannot alienate ourselves from the time of, of deep worship and engaging with the Holy Spirit through the word that He inspired. Not approaching it academically, but approaching it to know Him even more. To feed our souls. The third possible application here interpretation of what Jesus is referring to is speaking of the blessed hope of his appearing when he comes at the end the end of all things that could be in view too because it is true that in this life we experience sorrow pain suffering all of that and even though we we have the spirit of God who causes us to have joy there is a day coming in which the Lord will come from heaven he will glorify us, and there will be no sorrow, no pain, no tears, 
when the Lord grants us the culmination of our salvation, which is to be glorified in him. All of it ceases then. So it could be in reference to that, that Christ is speaking of his departure into heaven and then him coming again and all grief being turned to perfect joy. Any one of those three is really true, according to the passage. All three are true. The disciples experience great sorrow. Their sorrow is turned into joy upon the resurrected Christ appearing to them. In this life we experience joy, but it is the Spirit of God who is Christ's presence on earth who dwells with us, who grants us such joy. And a time is coming in which Christ will glorify us and end all suffering and pain. That's why the emphasis is momentary, light affliction. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking, the one who was beaten five times by the Jews, who received each time 39 lashes. He was, he was stoned, left for dead, He's been shipwrecked. All the things that the Apostle Paul has been through in his life. And he says this is momentary light affliction. And he says in Romans 8 that the sufferings of this world are not to be compared with the glory that awaits. So it's not as if the Apostle Paul had everything going for him. And he just says casually this is momentary light affliction. No, he experienced great pain and great suffering and yet he rejoiced in it. I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings he says. Being conformed to his death is the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians. And yet the whole context of Philippians and the whole theme of Philippians is to rejoice in the Lord even in the midst of the stuff that he's referring to. Ultimately we will have everlasting joy when the Lord returns, and that makes us to yearn even more for the time of our Lord. No more sorrow, no more pain, every tear being wiped away. Yet, we have to understand this, that this isn't just something that is in the distant future for us to lay hold of, because the Spirit of God, again, is the one who applies the benefits of Christ's work to you. And so we have a foretaste of what is to come. A foretaste of the completed work of the Spirit of God when we're glorified. We long for the day to see Christ Jesus. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God has changed our affections. He's restored in those who believe a desire for relationship with the living God. He has performed this work that as the Lord delights in himself, has perfect fellowship in himself, now, having been born of the Spirit, his desires are our desires. And so we do have that desire for fellowship with the living God. We long for the day that we'll no longer contend with sin, no longer battle, battle with ourselves. Why? Because the Spirit of God has caused us to be born again. He has performed a mighty work within our hearts 
changing our fallen minds and giving us the mind of Christ so we can accept the things of the Spirit of God and to see sin for what it is, cosmic rebellion. And so having changed our affections, having changed our minds, having changed our wills, now we look forward to the day we don't have to contend with sin because we recognize it's offensive to the living God. The Lord delights in righteousness and holiness of the truth, and so we delight too in what is right before God. To walk in obedience, to honor Him as we should. We look forward to the day in which we will love Him as He should be loved, to worship Him as He should be worshiped, to praise Him as He should be praised. Because having been born of the Spirit, having been born from above, we recognize now the infinite value and the infinite worth of Christ. He's allowed us to understand and to catch a glimpse of how majestic that the Lord Jesus Christ is. And it makes us want more. To desire more. To desire more of Him. This is the Spirit of God that produces these effects within us, giving us a foretaste of what is to come. Our sorrows are temporary, but our joy in the Lord is everlasting. We look forward to the day that all these things will be perfected. And this is perhaps why that the writer of Hebrews, as he as he speaks of all those within the hall of faith in chapter 11, as he's talking about these that died in faith, but then he's talking about those that, that died some, some very gruesome death. Some were sawn in two, some were stoned, some were crucified. But at the end of it all, when he begins chapter 12, he says, Therefore, laying aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily besets us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith. That's what they did. That's what gave them joy to write the things they did, to do the things they did, to preach the things that they did, because they were looking and focused upon Him so that the sorrows that they experienced in this life were not worthy to be compared with Him. So that... As Jesus says here, no one is able to take your joy from you. No one was able to take their joy from them, regardless of the death that they died. You think of all the disciples, the only disciple that didn't die a martyr's death was John. Some were crucified. Some were beheaded. Some had a spear ran through them. It is said in church history, according to church tradition, that Bartholomew was flayed alive. You think of the early church all the things that they endured, and yet the joy of the Lord never left them. That's why as men and women are being burned at the stake, that they can lift their arms, lift their hands to Christ, and they can rejoice, and they can sing the songs. Even in the, in the time of their death, they can sing the psalms. Why? Because even in the time of their death, the Spirit of God never left them, and the Spirit of God never removed the joy that they had in Christ. This joy is yours. 
But what is it that keeps you from it? And this is where we have to be deliberate. We have to be deliberate, as the author of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, running your race with endurance. Your circumstances don't have any power over you unless you let it. The wicked people in this world don't have any power over you unless you let them. The joy of the Lord is yours. It is yours for the taking, as it is said. And it is yours to every one of you who are in Christ. No one of you is exempt from receiving this specific attribute that God has allowed to be in man, which is the joy of the Lord. You may have grief now, but your heart will rejoice, Jesus says. So whatever it is that you're enduring in your life, instead of being so caught up in what has happened or what you're going through, remember the God that saved you and the God that loves you, the God that died for you, the God that has granted to you the Holy Spirit to dwell with you, to come alongside you, to guide you in the truth, to glorify Christ in your eyes, to testify about what Christ has done for you, to continually remind you of what, is, what, what has been done for you. This is the God who provides all of those things for his people, and through those is consistently reform, or reforming us, yeah, reforming us and conforming us to be more like Christ as these moral attributes of God are perfected in us as a result of these wonderful truths. You cannot leave this. Because as this speaks to you, this is where your joy is found as the Spirit applies the word to your heart. It is yours. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit of God. Thank you for all that he has performed in us. We all deserve to be left in darkness. For our sins were great. But in your mercy, in your grace, and in your love, you brought us in to the family of God. No longer are we unrighteous before you, but now we are seen through the righteousness of your Son. Now, by your Spirit, by Christ's work, we are now priests and kings to our God. Thank you for this wonderful gift of salvation of which we're so undeserving. Father, there are very difficult things that we experience in this life. Some that, are, that seem to be just so unbearable. But Father... We rejoice in this, that in the time of our greatest sorrows, that it is not in our own strength that we endure them, but it is because of the Spirit of God working in us, carrying us, providing for us, healing us. 
Thank you for his continued presence with us, for his great work in us. We rejoice in him. And I pray, Father, that you would indeed cause great joy within all of our hearts to remember who we are now in Christ and what great blessings we have received in this present age. Help us all, Father, for we need you every moment for these things to be true in our lives. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.